I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 16 this morning, and the title of the sermon is Two Are Better Than One. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 7, and I'll just wait a second in case we're still not finding Ecclesiastes too easily. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 7. This is the word of the Lord. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no, not another to lift him up again. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, who will withstand him? A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who had no longer no longer knew how to take advice. For when he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor, I saw all the living who move under the, under the sun, along with that youth who, sat, who was to, to stand in the king's place. And there was no end to all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity." and a striving after wind. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. We pray that the Holy Spirit would write its eternal truths on our heart. Well, in the early, very early 1950s, a young man by the name of Ray Kroc was an ambitious young salesman, working out, the trunk, working out of the trunk of his car, selling paper cups and multi-mixers that made milkshakes. He was going around from one restaurant to another in, in the Mideast. As a, as a young man, he was highly motivated. He was always on the lookout for that one product that he could really sink his teeth into, the one product that he could run with and make himself rich. In 1954, he met that founder. He found that product. He walked into a small hamburger shop in San Bernardino, California, owned by brothers Dick and Mac McDonald. They, they made three simple things, hamburgers, fries, and milkshakes. But Kroc was so impressed, not simply by the quality and the taste of their burger, but by the efficiency of the assembly line and how fast he got his food. Over his years, he had sold equipment to numerous restaurants, again, throughout the Mideast, and he had eaten at all of these establishments, and he knew what a good burger tasted like. And he could see the future, the huge potential of a chain of restaurants all across this young America that was now sprawling with new superhighways and everyone had cars. A, a, a restaurant that could guarantee simple, quality food that came quickly. Within a couple months, he became the franchising agent for the McDonald brothers. And within four years, just four years, he had established 100 restaurants. 
Now, under his single-mindedness, his business acumen, his, his consistency for good food and, and making sure this was all done well, he founded what we know as the McDonald's system today, and he became richer than any of his wildest dreams. Today, there's over 38,000 restaurants in over 100 countries, and believe it or not, there's 69 million people fed daily myself included today. On the way in, I had a coffee and I had a sandwich. He's he's an example of a modern rags to riches, a self-made entrepreneur who has really changed the way we live. He is in some ways the epitome of our driving economy, our force, our culture. He's someone that we should be looking up to, right? Well, no. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Founder on Netflix. If you haven't, I, I want to encourage you to, to watch that. Because he, he actually founded this empire basically at the expense of all others. Not only did he intentionally manipulate the McDonald's brothers when he couldn't get his way, but he actually bought the land that their original restaurant was on. He forced them out of business within a year And he also copyrighted their very name so they couldn't have their name on their own restaurant, the founding restaurant. And so it's a very seedy story, being manipulative, controlling, domineering. It was a single-mindedness, but it was a single-mindedness to make money at the expense of almost anything else. An example of selfish individualism that drives our Western culture. And we see it all the time, and we hear about it, but we may not recognize it. Things like raising the cost of life-giving drugs by 700%. Ambition at all costs. Now, two weeks ago, when we were last in the book of Ecclesiastes, we saw in chapter 4 that the the preacher starts to address this situation. He he brings it forth, the idea of selfish individualism. Look at verse 4 with me in chapter 4. It says, Then I saw that all the toil and all the skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. So today, as we start in verses 7 through 16, the preacher is going to take up that idea of selfish individualism, what it means to be driven by envy. And he presents us with the outcome of such a life. His encouragement to us is this. And so the purpose statement, if you want to write something down, this would be it this morning. Working alone or pursuing life by ourselves is futile. Meaning in life is found in working together. Let me say that again. Working alone or pursuing life by ourselves is futile. Meaning in life is found in working together. Now, if we start reading these verses on our own and not take special attention, we want to go in a linear fashion, you know, one verse after another. But we'd be scratching our heads after a couple seconds because you can tell that the verses 7 through 16 naturally break up into three segments. We have verses 7 through 8, we have 9 through 12, and then we have 13 through 16. But part of the problem is that last section, 13 through 16, doesn't seem to really connect to the first two. So before we go anywhere this morning, we need to remember that this is wisdom literature. 
So like the Psalms and, and like Proverbs and many other sections, there is a literary device that is used by the, by the, uh, in the Old Testament. It's called chiasm, or some call it chiliasm or chiasm, but it's chiasm. And think of chiasm as a greater than sign, so like this. We have two sections. One section here, it says, this is the problem. We have down here, this is the better way. And then we come back in the last verse to the problem again. You see the flow from bad to good, back to bad again. And the center is what we're supposed to be looking at. So the preacher starts by showing us the outcome of a life that is dedicated to satisfying the envious desires of our heart. Verses 7 through 8. We see a man who has worked endlessly to gain all the things that life would give him. Everything that his heart's desired. And yet he's never satisfied with what he had. His eyes are continually looking for more, but he's never got any satisfaction from any of it in the long run. So the idea is that there is this insatiable aspect of consumerism, uh, what we call conspicuous consumption today, this always buying and getting more and more and more. No matter what we have, we want more. We want something newer. We want something better. And I was thinking about this early this morning at around six o'clock. I was thinking, what is the greatest example of that? I think our cell phones. They seem to be waning a little bit with all the in innovations, but for years now, it, there's been this big rollout of all the new cell phones, the new gadgets, the new, the new things that we have to have, and, and people lining up to get something that they, they're only replacing another that's only a couple years old. But, but more importantly here for the preacher, sooner or later, that person, sooner or later, us, we find ourselves alone isolated and unconnected to others around us. So the person in the story here, he, he's, he's been searching and, and striving after all these things, and he looks around and he asks himself, well, who am I toiling for? I've got no one to share my wealth with. I've got no kids, no brothers and sisters, no family. There's no one who will benefit from my work. I've got this nice mountain of things, but no one to share them with. And you know what? I, I've been so preoccupied with striving after these things and getting these things that I've really pushed everything or everybody in my life out. And I don't know if you've noticed that in our lives, in our modern lives today. There are two things. No matter how much we have, we're never satisfied. We always want more. I mean, there's always more bills to pay. And that's just evidence of this ongoing problem that we have of feeding our own selfish desires. But secondly, the more we need, the more we work. The harder we work, the more hours we put in. The more hours we put in, the less connected we are to the people around us that matter. And it's not just individuals. It's not just you and me. It happens as our, in our culture and our society as a whole. I would dare say it would be easy to, to assume and, and to, to demonstrate we're better off than we were 50 years ago. Our lives are generally better. We have more toys. We have more niceties. We have a higher quality life. But over the last 100 years or so, or over the last 10 years or so, um, there have been great changes. 
Let me give you an example. It's hard to see them from here, but if you're able to step aside. So in our 10 years in Chile, we would come home every couple years. And so when you're out of the country for 10 years and you come back in for a short time, you really get disoriented by how fast and how far away the culture has changed. And so for us, things like this consumption and all the new toys that we had to have was made very evident one time when we came home. And everybody was thinking about buying jacuzzis and whirlpools. It wasn't just thinking, maybe not everybody, but every newspaper that you looked at, every store had a sale on. Now, five or six years before that, that was a luxury for those who had lots of money and their houses were paid off. But now it's something for everybody, every Joe Blow. This is something that's affordable and you need to have. But that was just one example of where something that had been a luxury item now becomes something that is there for everyone. I think the most recent example for me, and again, maybe we don't notice it quite so much because we're in this stream of things, is cars. Not just Fords and Chevrolets, but more and more our neighborhoods are filled with Porsches. Now, I'm not talking about 911s. <laughs> I'm talking about Cayennes, affordable, supposedly, Porsches. But the reality is that these luxury marks are now the things that are within our grasp. They're things to be desired, to be envied, to seek after. But it comes at a cost. We become more isolated. We've become more individualistic in, in our searches and, and separating, and we're endangered actually becoming isolationists. Mark Driscoll made this point a couple years ago in a sermon that I had heard. He said, 30 years ago, eating in family, or since 30 years ago, so what's this, 2010, so uh, 1980? Since then, eating meals together as a family have decreased by 33%, believe it or not. Inviting people over to your homes, that's down 45%. But you know what? Pet care is up 15%. Because I'm at home and I have a pet that I can care and love and, and fill my needs. So sharing time with people is going down. A recent statistic in, in Canada, since or between 1980 and 2005, we actually decreased the amount of time that we spent together as a family. In that block of time, 25 years, we are 45 minutes less every day together as a family. And that was 15 years ago that study was taken. Can you imagine? You only have five or six hours a day to spend in quality family time. 45 minutes have been lost because of different things. Now, COVID has given us a, a reprieve from that as a moment, but what was our life before this? It's basically... Our, our relationships are secondary to our work. We get into our cars in the morning. We have our coffee. We have our donuts there. We go to the office. We have these small cubicles and working spaces so that we, we don't get interrupted. We minimize the distractions around us to maximize our efficiency. We, we commute home again, perhaps with another coffee. We get home, watch our favorite TV show, spend some time on the internet. Again, COVID has broken this cycle, at least for the moment, and, and allowed us to see this. But 
I don't know a family who hasn't been struggling with interfamily relational problems. See, we have been going full blast at this, this uh, individualization and understanding and living my life, and, and we can't, when COVID changes everything, we can't come back and be confined together and, and live and spend that time together. The average house has two to four TVs. I'm not talking about computers, because every once in a while I'll turn mine on to watch a football game to football as European as soccer. Uh, as opposed to my kids watching something else. So we'll watch our shows alone without interference from others. And you know what? Even if we have the habit of watching shows together, I've been blown away, the absolutely astounded by that we've become a society fixated on reality shows. We would rather watch other people do things and live lives together than doing it ourselves. Uh, and then you have the internet on top of all that. Our phones, our tablets are connected 24-7. We spend untold hours on social media by ourselves, and yet we never truly get to interact face-to-face -face with anyone and have any quality time. It's all an illusion of community. It, you've seen the story. You've probably seen it, it before. You go into a restaurant, you go to uh, somewhere, and everyone in the family is on their cell phone and not talking to each other. We've had it in our family. We go out every once in a while, uh, and uh, you'll see the girls, and then Shauna will get on, and I'll check my email. Everyone's doing it, and it's like we're together, but we're not even connecting. But you know what? It's, it's reflected in our architecture, too. Think about this. All of the new houses and condominiums going up, they have now some of the smallest shared living areas ever. Those who can afford big homes up in Markham and, and those places, who could, you know, two and three million dollars, the space is not dedicated to places like living rooms and families and porches. It's to the bedrooms, to walk-in closets, to huge bathrooms, places that we spend time alone. In 1940, single-family households in Canada were just under 7% of our population. By the census in 2016, it was 28%. And it's still increasing smallly, in a small amount every year. Truly, we've become a people who live lives on our own terms. We want to do life our way. We're becoming increasingly disconnected in any real vital way with one another. Increasingly isolated. Increasingly lonely and disconnected. In many ways, we are the man and the woman of verse 8. We're striving after all of these things. We're not finding satisfaction, but we are finding ourselves distanced from one another. Individualistic. Now, there is an answer to this problem, to this concern, to what the preacher calls this unhappy business, and we see it in verse 9. He says, two are better than one. These verses are often used in wedding ceremonies, and you know, good reason, husband and wife coming together, becoming one flesh, serving and working together. But the main idea isn't focused on husband and wife. The main idea is that anyone coming together to work, anyone in, in a close proximity that is serving one another, two are better than one. 
So instead of this rugged individualism that we have, that our, our culture aspires to, that, that many see as a virtue that we admire so much, like Ray Kroc, the preacher wants us to know that it is better to work in partnership. By working together, there is a great reward. And he demonstrates this with three examples, three ways. Verse 10, he says that if they fall, one will be able to help the other get up. Now imagine yourself in ancient Middle East. There's no roads, there's no streetlights, there's no flashlights, it's hot during the day, but by the cool of the night, you can go out and travel from one place to another. The trails wind up and down the hills and go along the tops of the ravines, so it's easy to slip or to stumble on a rock, and if you're alone, there's no one to help you. Verse 11, he says that... Um, they will be able to keep each other warm on a cold night. Now, one of the great dangers in traveling alone, uh, especially at night, is this risk of hypothermia. You always have to find a way to keep yourself warm. So as long as you're with someone else, you can be back-to-back and share blankets and stay warm. Or if it's your significant other, you can actually cuddle even more. But there's warmth as two come and share that time. In verse 12, he says, there's a, there's a real concern of protection here, a real idea. If you're traveling alone, there's a great chance that you would have gotten attacked by robbers. Even today, we, we know that there's a great danger of traveling alone. You're not allowed to hitchhike in, in many areas in, in Ontario. So in terms of being with another person, it's helpful, isn't it? There's someone there to protect you. Now, we need to remember that God created us for community. In Genesis 2, verse 18, God creates Adam, places him in the Garden of Eden. But what does he say next? It is not good for him to be alone. He was incomplete by himself. He needed a helper. Now, now we can think that this idea of community here is simply restricted to marriage, to Adam and Eve, but what are they called to do? What does God tell them to do as a couple? To multiply and fill the earth. So there's this extension going out to the greater community even beyond them. We were created as social beings. The work that God has given us has always been in the context of working closely with one another. In fact, one of the reasons why we have this close working together in the church is because that's where godliness and that's where holiness is worked out in a practical way in our life. When God calls Israel to be his special possession, he gives them a holy law, a law that requires that they love their neighbor. Leviticus 19, verse 18, says what? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It it was at the very core of who they are. In the same way God has loved you, you must love your neighbor. So they couldn't be loners. They had to be thinking of others. Salvation meant part of being God's people. And it brought great responsibility. But, you know, it wasn't simply for God's people. It was also for the nations around them. In fact, if they didn't act according to Leviticus 19, if they didn't take the other needs of people around them as equal to theirs, they were considered to be breaking the law. 
And many times in the Old Testament, as the prophets came, they proclaimed judgment on Israel for this very reason. They have not taken care of the widows, the orphans, or those who are in need. Jesus himself reiterates this idea, doesn't he? We cannot be selfish loners. In Matthew 28, 39, he says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We were made for community. And you know what? God takes this idea of community and he sanctifies it. When he saves us from our sin, he does what? He adopts us and he brings us into a family of God. Even if we have no physical family, we are now brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are to live and to love our neighbors as ourselves, even if they're not Christians. And and so quickly, we can see this theme running through the New Testament. I'm not going to spend tons of time on it this morning, but it's there. Jesus himself demonstrates this necessity of working together. He's not a solitary Messiah. He has his work that needs to be done. But what does he do? He brings along 12 disciples along beside him. And then he sends them out to evangelize. He sends them out two by two. We know according to Acts chapter 2 that early Christians were not loners. As they waited for, in anticipation for Christ's return, they shared all of their possessions as each one had need. Philippians 2, verses 3 to 4 says what? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And, and finally, 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 13, those wonderful chapters we've all heard preached and we could all share. We are one body of Christ. We are different members. We have different giftedness, but God has brought us together as one. We work together for the common good of all. We pursue God's purposes together. We accomplish his will together. There's nothing in the Old Testament, nothing in the New Testament, about the loner Christian, about the man or the woman who professes to be saved by Christ and yet does not partake in the life of the church, of the body, who does not work, as we're going to see in a minute, in the body, serving each other. So in contrast to this solitary person, this person who becomes disconnected from others, really, a life that is so much a part of our everyday culture We're called to community for living and serving one another in close proximity. We're redeemed to become part of a community, a church. And again, in that association, in that working, in that living out, we grow in holiness together by serving. The preacher even goes as far as to say that two are better than one, but you know what? A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, I don't know if you've ever taken a a skein of yarn and actually tried putting two or three different pieces of yarn together and twisting them. There are times some of that yarn is thin enough you could take the one strand and poof, and you could break it. Two, it'd be pretty hard to do. Three, there's just no way. And the reality is, is that as you put the third one in there, it's not the force 
uh, or the, the, uh, the strength is not simply doubled. It's not simply trebled. The strength is exponential than the single. And I searched online to see if anyone's ever done a scientific research on this to actually give us how many forces of Newton, for example, it takes to break three strains of something over one strain. And it's not been done to my knowledge. But the reality is, is that it's greater than three times. There's an exponential strength that as we are woven together, it cannot be broken. While two people are stronger than one, three working together are even stronger. And think of the great reward that's ours in, in everyday life, in, in things around the house. We can accomplish, but when we accomplish together, we can do so much more. Now, I don't know about your household, but there's two big tasks that there's no end to doing. Laundry and dishes. <laughs> And for one person to do either of those, it's an onerous responsibility. It, it's just very difficult, and there's no great reward at the end of it unless you have your own clothes clean. But the reality is, is we've been learning in our family that as each one picks up their share of the load, maybe putting in the laundry, another one folding it, one unloading the dishwasher, another fold, there is great reward because we're all benefiting from that act together. So to take the image in verses 9 through 12 of that traveler, you know, those three examples that he, that he gave us? If we fall, someone can pick us up. But we're, we're not simply talking now in a physical sense, are we? We're not simply talking about stumbling down a ravine. We're not simply saying that I need a car ride, and so would you please give me a ride to the store, or I need help with my groceries because I've lost my job. But there is a spiritual application here too. When we stumble and sin, and, and we will, when we stumble and sin, there will be another one there to help us. If we start to stray off the path, there is a dear brother and sister in Christ who comes alongside, who knows us, who can keep us on the straight and narrow. If we find ourselves spiritually cold, with we don't have a lot of fuzzy feelings or warm feelings towards God, our thoughts are getting hard, we can take great comfort in one another. As I see someone who is was dealing with difficulties in their life, I can come alongside and encourage them with warm words of Christ. By walking with each other, we can provide a spark of passion that they need. And so there is great reward for them, but there's also great reward for me as I am used by God to do that. Sometimes we just need physical touch. We need a hug to be told everything's okay. God loves you and we're here. Well, what if we're walking together in our lives? What about this idea of protection? In Chile, it's wonderful to see these preschoolers. Uh, they would go to the museum, so they'd get on the bus, they'd go downtown, and as soon as they got off the bus, they were in these cute little uniforms. Oh, they're so cute. But they had to be all attached on this rope. And as they walked from one place to another, they hung on to the rope, a teacher at the beginning and a teacher at the end. Our spiritual life is a buddy system. And if we don't have a buddy, 
we're in serious trouble. Now, two months ago, I put out a general call in one of my letters to any men who would want to get together and just have a time of accountability. Only two have called me up on it, and we met for the first time this past week. I, I can't share with you how important each of us feels this is for our spiritual life. I, I'm a pastor, but I stumble, I sin. I need someone alongside me to encourage me, to strengthen me, to, to say, you're doing something wrong. I need dear brothers in my life, and these two have seen likewise. If we don't have that accountability, we're setting us up for trouble. Here's the reality, is every aspect of life, there's a danger of being alone. Backpacking through South America, is there a danger? Being alone? Yes. Walking the, the dim streets of downtown Toronto on your own late in the evening, is there, is there a danger there? Yes. Is there a danger of older people living on their own? Yes. I don't know about you, there was a commercial that ran for about 20 years for Life Alert. And the funny thing is that they never really changed it. It was always this older man or older woman. And she'd be lying on the ground grasping the, the Life Alert. She says, I've fallen and I can't get up. But that's our spiritual life. If we are not part of a group of two or a group of three, we are that person who will fall because of sin, and we will not be able to get up. We need one another to encourage each other to walk in holiness, to walk in a manner that not only glorifies God, but serves His purposes here on earth. So we understand in, in the physical sense of dangers around us, and we warn each other against these types of things. So how much more so is the danger to our spiritual lives? If we know there's a physical danger out there, we'll say, you know, make sure that when you drop your daughter off at work at night, at that dimly lit back door, that you stay with her until that back door is open and that she gets in. How much more so will we say, when you're alone in your house, who's guarding your heart? from the sins of pornography. We need one another to walk in godliness. So I want to ask you a few personal application questions this morning. First one, am I easy to work with? And it sounds like a simple question, but think of it this way. Do people want to work with me or do they shy away? There's lots of talented Christians all around, but no one will work with them. Am I always the last one being picked for the baseball team type of thing? Because if you are, then there's a concern that you have distanced yourself from others. Number two, do I act as a true companion, as a true brother and sister in Christ? Is what I'm saying encouraging, or is it gossip? Am I a good listener? Am I giving biblical advice? Am I really involved in their life and helping them whenever I can as the Lord leads? And then the third one, do I have someone in my life to whom I'm accountable? 
Someone who can ask the difficult questions. Who knows how my heart strays. Who knows my weaknesses. Who knows that we live in this fallen world and everything under the sun is futile. There's oppression, there's vanity, and there's this natural insatiable desire for all of the wants that that are out there. But there is a great reward for walking together of being interconnected and interdependent. Now, in verses 13 through 16, (coughs) we see this lesson affirmed in a comparison between two kings, uh, a a young king uh, and a wise king and a foolish king. Now, as you're looking and reading at the story, the transitions are a little hard to follow at times, but basically the story is this. There is this young king who was actually in prison, and and a a young man who had nothing in his own country, and yet he unexpectedly became king, and he ruled over a vast empire, richer than he could ever imagine. He, He attained the height of wealth and power, but there was this second king, an older man who was foolish. He didn't take the advice of others. He didn't have counsel with others who could help him. The moral of the story is this. While two are better than one, and a threefold cord cannot be easily broken, wisdom in and of ourselves will only get us so far. One, wor- one day, our wealth will be gone. One day, our lives will be over, and the greatest accomplishments that we could ever have achieved are gone. One day soon, everyone whom we ever loved, everyone whom we've ever known, everyone whom we ever worked with will be gone. But the preacher says, in the meantime, there is great benefit to living life together to working together for the good of each, and other, for each other. In fact, our greatest danger is thinking that we can live alone or thinking that it just doesn't matter. God has created us for community, and there's a purpose of godliness in that. Now, I, I've shared many times, I've only been here a year and a half, but I've shared many times about my grandfather, um, I loved him very much. He's one of those iconic characters. You look back at the history of Canada. He was a a trapper and a lumberjack. (coughs) He grew up with another man by the name of Nelson McClelland. They were only days apart, born in 1900, in the same little community. They grew up together, knowing each other, playing together. When the Spanish flu hit... Both of them almost died. Both of them uh, lived through World War I and World War II without having to actually go. They were too young for World War I, too old for World War II, but they did everything that they could back here in Canada. For years, I remember my grandfather, as he grew older, would always go to the county fairs, and the expectation is, I'm going to be the oldest man. You know, there's always a prize for the oldest man there, right? I'm going to win that this year. I'm going to beat old Nelson McClellan. But there was old Nelson sitting in the chair and winning it just by days. These men had lived lives of hardship together. 
They grew up as lumberjacks. They grew up in the hunt camps. They grew up burying children. I'm burying in the ground. Both of them had lost wives. And I remember seeing my grandfather, probably the last time that he was alive, going into the seniors' home in Perry Sound. He was here. Nelson McClellan was here. Born days apart. My grandfather had survived the death of my grandmother, whom he loved. Had a, a, a marriage for over 53 years. But he didn't survive the death of Nelson McClellan. Days after Nelson died, he died. That's a life that is so intertwined. Living, serving, working. And my hope, my desire is that as a church, we can experience that closeness. 96 years old. And he died within days of his best friend. Now, there are some people who would say that they don't feel connected to the church today. My question is, are you serving? Because the preacher says, very specifically, working together for a common purpose, for God's purpose, brings meaning to life, brings community. Last night there was a phone call or a Zoom meeting between the PCT and several lay leaders in the church who wanted to share their concerns and, and questions about where we're going and um, things like that. And you know what? The PCT, we, you know, the pastoral care team, we, we got our ears batted a little bit. But I want to tell you this. There are people serving in this church, serving you, that don't have official titles necessarily. And last night, not one but two of them were breaking into tears because they say, where are the people who are willing to, cost or to, to pay the price for Christ, who are willing to count the cost of serving one another? It's not serving and being involved in a ministry because it's a ministry. It's saying, I love Christ so much. And that the way that works out is, as I'm in community, I love, I serve, I work. And the preacher says, there is great benefit. There is great reward. As we serve one another, we are agents of holiness. We are agents to encourage that godly walk. And we do so for God's greater purpose for the church. Where are you in your service to the body this morning? Where are you in your fellowship to the body? Community is not simply spending time with each other, doing things that we might like to do, like playing games. It is serving one another in humility.
And that's where life is. That's where we're going to find meaning. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we thank you so much. <laughs> we confess that our hearts are so dull sometimes. We understand the basic principles and, and yet we do not engage to the level uh, of, of what we proclaim, uh, that we are followers of Jesus Christ. Help us, I pray, as we look forward to take the charge here, uh, this lesson, personally. We need to be part of a community that is so intricately linked in service and care for one another, Lord God, that when one person isn't there, we notice, we cry out, and we seek after them. Lord, thank you for this church. We thank you for its imperfections because, Lord, that is what you have called us here to work on, to serve, to care for. Continue to use us for your glory. In Jesus' name.